This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance. Father, we're thankful that we can spend this time each week together being encouraged by the teaching of your word, understanding your grace, understanding how you have reached out in your grace initiative time and time again throughout history, always extending favor to us even though we do not deserve it. And above all, we're thankful for our salvation, knowing that it is through Christ's work on the cross that the root problem of all life, the problem of sin, has been solved, and that because he was able to solve that problem, he was able to solve all other problems, so that the issue now becomes our faith, becomes our trust in him, our reliance upon him, and the challenge to us each day is to walk by means of faith, by means of God the Holy Spirit, that we may learn to glorify you in every area of life, living as you have taught us in your word, thinking as you have taught us in your word, that we may be a testimony both to other humans as well as before the angels and for all eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8. This morning we're going to look at the first 17 verses. Matthew chapter 8 and 9 was the topic last week in a flyover a way in which we sort of orient to a section of each book. And in this section, what Matthew is doing is giving us the credentials of Jesus as the Messiah. The term Messiah is a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. Its Greek equivalent is Christos, so that the name Jesus Christ is really Jesus the Messiah or Yeshua HaMashiach as it is in the Hebrew, identifying his role in human history, that he is the eternal second person of the Godhead who has entered into human history as a human being. This is what is known theologically as the hypostatic union. The Greek word hypostasis indicates a, a substance or a, a, a person, and you have the are, are the, the essence, and so you have the two natures, nature as it were, the two natures, full humanity and, and true deity united together in one person, and they're united together inseparably. And so as we come to a passage like this, we see that Jesus is performing miracles, but some of the miracles that he performs, he performs out of his uh, humanity, as it were, and some he performs from his deity. He is living his life in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, 
that relates to his spiritual life as a human. But he also demonstrates through what he does that he is the eternal second person of the Godhead, that he is also full deity. Some people are mistaken in thinking that Jesus did everything just uh, just as a man. But there are some things he handles as a man through his humanity and dependence of God the Holy Spirit. For example, when he is uh, going through temptation, uh, the three temptations, the three tests in Matthew chapter 4 when he's in the wilderness. Those he handled by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of Scripture. He's ha- those are tests related to his spiritual life and his humanity. But other miracles that Jesus performed, such as these healings that we see here, are done through his own power as God, demonstrating that he is uh, fully God, and he can solve the problems of sin, because especially in this first section where we see the focus on miracles of healing, we have to understand the dynamics of, of healing, that sickness and illness are the consequences of a root problem, and that root problem is Adam's original sin. When Adam sinned, it plunged the Uh, universe into corruption. And as a result of that corruption, all of the other evils and all of the other horrors that we see in life, uh, death, disease, famines, disasters, whether they're hurricanes or tornadoes or, or horrible acts of war and torture, and all of the evils that we see are all the consequences, Scripture says, of spiritual death. By demonstrating that he can solve the problems of these consequences through the, through healing. Jesus is showing that he can so also solve the root problem, uh, which is sin. So that's that is really the subtext through all these miracles that that Matthew is describing and uh, and organizing in Matthew chapters uh, seven and eight. So we're looking this morning at the first set of miracles, the miracles of healing in the first 17 verses. Now this is all taking place around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is in the north. It is uh, in the uh, area known as Galilee. Actually, it's not a sea. It is a lake. But that the reason we call it the Sea of Galilee goes back to a fallacious translation in English uh, centuries ago, and so it sort of sticks uh, Capernaum is located in about the 1130 position on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee and was a significant area uh, because it was astride the tr- trade routes in that area and it was also a primary uh, commercial fishing village uh, at the time. Jesus moved there from Nazareth and this is his hometown and this is where he lived. It's called the, the city of Jesus. Now, Matthew 8.1 begins uh, after the Sermon on the Mount. And the first, uh, the first miracle is when Jesus cleanses the leper. And it's important, I think, to note that in this section, in these four verses, that it is not said that Jesus heals the leper, but he cleanses the leper. And that word for cleansing is a term that has spiritual connotations to it and is emphasizing the fact that this has a spiritual significance. It's not simply a matter of physical healing. 
when we conclude our look at these these three miracles, I'll begin to look at the doctrine summarizing for us what the Scripture teaches about healing because there's a lot of confusion about it. But one of the things that we note is that Jesus did not heal indiscriminately. By that I mean he's not going around healing everyone that has a problem, healing everyone that has a disease. He is choosing and selecting those whom he will heal. There is a purpose to it. It is not something that he is just doing for everyone. And the point there is there should never be an expectation that God is going to, in this life, heal us of all diseases or infirmities or physical calamities. That is not what the Scripture is teaching. The pri- one of the primary purposes for these healings is to give evidence that Jesus is the Messiah because as the Messiah, he is the one who will bring in the promised kingdom. And in the promised kingdom, according to Old Testament prophecy, there will not be any of these diseases. There will be a more perfect environment. And so what Jesus is doing in, in, in these various miracles is giving a preview of coming attractions. This is like the beginning of, of, of going to a, see a film at the theater and you get to watch about 20 minutes worth of previews. This is a preview of coming attractions. He is not at any way saying that this was to be the normative experience of the pre-kingdom dispensation of either the age of Israel, which he lived, or in the coming church age. Now, this is one of the misconceptions that has influenced a lot of Christians over the age because they don't understand these distinctions, and they expect that these conditions... Uh, that Jesus uh, presented during his life would be normative in in the church age, and they're not. They are to be normative, though, in the millennial kingdom. So the first miracle is a miracle of the healing of the leper. We're told in verse 1, when Jesus had come down from the mountain, this is after his sermon on the mount, great multitudes followed him. We saw that when he was uh, giving the Sermon on the Mount, initially he went up higher on the mountain, higher on, on the hill, actually. These are not mountains if you're from a, a western state where you have the Rocky Mountains. These are more like the mountains that you have or the hills that you have in the Texas Hill Country. There's a lot of similarity in the terrain in Israel between Israel and the Texas Hill Country. So he has been up there, he went, uh, left the crowds, went up a little higher, his disciples sat around him, and he taught them. And as he was teaching them, more and more people came up to gather around to listen to what he was teaching his, his disciples. When that was con- uh, concluded, then he left to leave the crowd, to get away from the crowd, but these great multitudes followed him. And then in verse 2, Matthew says, and behold, or and look, and he's emphasizing something by his use of that terminology, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, what is significant about this is that the very first of these uh, miracles of healing that Matthew emphasizes has to do with the leper. Now, remember, Matthew is not organizing these miracles in a chronological order. That's not his purpose. He's not writing the gospel and giving us a chronological account of the life of Christ. 
Luke does that. If you want to learn the uh, more correct order of events in the life of Christ, then you would look at the Gospel of Luke. But what Matthew is doing is he's looking at different events in the life of Christ, and he's organizing them according to his, his theme. And his theme is that he is presenting Jesus as the uh, promised and prophesied king of Israel as the Messiah. And so his, his selection of events in the life of Christ is to support his thesis that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the very first miracle that he chooses is one related to uh, healing a leper, cleansing a leper. And the reason is, is because according to rabbinical thought, only two, there were only two irrefutable signs or miracles that the Messiah would perform. The first was cleansing or healing a leper, and the second was restoring sight to someone who was born blind. That no one else could do this, this couldn't be faked, this couldn't be counterfeited, that these were the two irrefutable signs of the Messiah. And so uh, we have to understand a little bit about leprosy in the Bible. Leprosy was a, is a slow-progressing skin disease. There's a lot of debate in literature as to whether the biblical portrayal of leprosy is identical to the modern understanding of leprosy as Hansen's disease. And there's a lot of debate, and you can read lots of different information. People will come up with this and that and the other thing. But if you read the account in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, which is the central passage, you'll discover that biblical leprosy was also something that could appear on clothing, and it could appear on various fabrics. It could appear on a tent. It could appear on someone's clothing or some other uh, some other fabric, and it was probably some kind of a mold or mildew. And it's very likely that the biblical term was a broad, broader term than our term leprosy in terms of Hansen's disease, but it would have also included that uh, as part of the general semantic range of this particular word. It, as it affected a human being in terms of a disease, it was a progressive skin disease that really wasn't related to so much the deterioration of the flesh as much as it was the deterioration of pain and nerve endings. And so that a person who has leprosy or has Hansen's disease is a person that as the nerve endings become, become dull, they don't know that they're doing something that is creating pain, and so they will burn themselves or they will uh, cut a finger off or they will cut, their nose will be cut off or any number of things will happen because they don't feel pain there. And so they're completely numb to those things. Leprosy in the biblical era was also used as a picture of sin because there was no known cure for leprosy. It was the only... Uh, the only way, means of defilement that didn't involve uh, something related to the touching of the dead or touching some animal that was alive that was unclean. Under the Mosaic Law, the only way a person could be defiled by another living human being was by touching a leper. All other causes of uncleanness were from touching something that was already dead, a dead person or dead animal 
or touching a living animal that was unclean, for example, touching a pig or shrimp or lobster or any of the other things that were considered to be unclean under the Mosaic law. In addition, the very presence of a leper in a house or in a building, in a home, would bring uh, uncleanness to the entire structure. And so uh, lepers were prohibited from entering into anybody's house. They were prohibited uh, from coming within six feet of anyone else. And this uh, caused quite a, a, a hostility towards lepers in the ancient world, and it was especially demonstrated uh, by the Pharisees during the time of Christ. There was this there was a complete lack of, of any sort of grace orientation or compassion towards those who were, were lepers. In fact, if you read certain rabbinical writings, they talk about how that whenever they see a leper, they would stone them or throw stones at them to drive them away, or they would never go into a street where a leper had been, and they wouldn't even buy groceries on a street where a leper had been. There was just this this animosity expressed towards towards lepers rather than a biblical uh, biblical virtue of loving your neighbor as yourself. One of the interesting things about leprosy is that no Jew was ever healed of leprosy in the Old Testament since the giving of the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law, of course, is where the stipulations were given in relation to uh, leprosy in Leviticus 13 to 14. Now, it's true that Miriam had a case of leprosy, but at that time the law had not been completely uh, completely given. And so uh, from the time of the complete giving of the law, the end of Torah, no Jew was ever healed of leprosy. You have one case of, Syri- of, uh, of Naaman the Syrian who was healed of leprosy in Second Kings, but he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. So from the time of the completion of the giving of the law until the time that Jesus appears on the scene, no leper had ever been healed of leprosy. It is for that reason that the rabbis had come to the conclusion that only the Messiah would be able to heal a leper. So by choosing this as his first miracle of healing, Matthew is making a very strong statement that Jesus is making a claim to being the Messiah. Now, in in the Scripture, it teaches that uh, in Leviticus 13 and 14, that when a person was believed to have been cleansed from leprosy, he was to have that validated by a priest. He would go to the priest and he would state that he had uh, uh, his claim to be healed of leprosy. And the initial offering that was given was that of two birds. Uh, one would be killed and the other would be dipped in the blood of the first and let, let go. And then there would be a seven-day period of an investigation of his claims. During this time, the priests were to determine if this person were truly a leper. Uh, if he was truly a leper, then they had to to validate his claim to being completely healed of leprosy. So he's under observation during that that uh, week long period. And if he was declared to have been cleansed, then following that on the 
uh, seventh day, he was to go through a complete washing, and he was to shave all of the hair off of his body, along with a few other things. And uh, then on the eighth day, he was to give a trespass offering, a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a meal offering. And following this, the blood of the trespass offering and then the blood of the sin offering would be put on the healed leper uh, following this with the anointing with oil of the healed leper. So it was a very complex, complicated process. But it had never been done in the history of Israel since the time of the giving of the Mosaic Law. Can you imagine that? At, because at the end of this, we see that that when after Jesus cleanses the leper, he tells him, don't tell anybody, go to the priest and give the appropriate sacrifices. So you can imagine what that priest might have, must have thought when all of a sudden a leper shows up and says he's been cleansed of leprosy and there was no frame of reference for dealing with this other than going back to the law. This would have created uh, quite a stir. Now, biblically, leprosy was used as a depiction of the corruption of sin. It not only rendered the person unclean, but any place that he entered. This shows that that sin, the sin of Adam, was not something that just affected Adam, but it affected everything in the uh, physical environment uh, because of man's sin. And it emphasizes, therefore, the universal corrupting effect of sin. Secondly, the uncleanness of the leper was permanent. All other uncleanness had a sacrifice for cleansing. If you were to touch a dead body, then you had to wait a prescribed period of time and then bring an offering to the temple and you were cleansed. If you ate trafe, if you ate food that was unclean, once again, you would present a sacrifice for that. If there were any number of other things that occurred that rendered you ritually unclean, there was a prescribed sacrifice so that you could be rendered clean again, except for Leprosy. Leprosy was permanent. There was no ritual cleansing possible because ritual can't resolve the sin problem. Sin can only be resolved by God. A third point is that when the leper uh, spoken of uh, was when the when leprosy was spoken of, it's spoken of only as being cleansed. That's the emphasis here, not in terms of a physical healing. And the reason is, is because it has this spiritual connection uh, related to cleansing. Cleansing is a spiritual issue, not a physical uh, issue. And then finally, like sin, leprosy corrupts the whole person and could not be cured by something that man would do. Now, when we look at verse 2, we're told that a leper came and worshipped him. What's unusual here is that the leper approaches Jesus, and he was, according to the law, supposed to keep a distance of, of uh, four cubits or six feet. Luke, in the parallel passage in Luke 7, which I read from earlier, Luke informs us that the man was full of leprosy. He was in an advanced state of the illness. And so it was obvious to all that this was a leper that was coming. He was probably wrapped in rags. He probably stank. Uh, he was uh, the, the social outcast. And whenever lepers were moving around close to anyone else, they had to cry out, unclean, 
unclean to make sure people would keep their distance. And so here this leper comes into this huge multitude surrounding Jesus, shouting unclean, unclean, until he gets close to Jesus. Jesus doesn't prevent him or pull back from him as the rabbis would have, and he comes to Jesus and he uh, bows down and worships him. Uh, the word that we see in Scripture here for worship is literally the word meaning to bow down, and it is giving an act of reverence to someone. It's the same word that is typically translated uh, translated worship. So we see four things here in terms of his approach. First of all, he is confident as he comes to Jesus. If he had approached a rabbi, the rabbis would have shunned him. Rabbi uh, Mier said that uh, he would not even eat an egg that was purchased in a street where there had been a leper. Other rabbis prescribed throwing stones at the lepers. So there's this atmosphere of animosity and hostility uh, from the rabbis, and yet this leper understands who Jesus is so clearly that he shows no fear no anxiety, no trepidation in approaching Jesus. He goes, comes through the crowd knowing in full confidence that Jesus is not going to reject him and Jesus is not going to be hostile to him. This is a full understanding of grace at this point. And so he comes to Jesus uh, confident that Jesus can heal him. Second, when he comes to Jesus, he, Luke tells us he bowed down. Matthew uses a different word. He uses the word proskuneo, meaning to worship. And this, again, indicates that he knows who Jesus is. He understands that he is the God-man. He understands that he is capable of healing him. The issue really isn't can Jesus heal him. The issue is will Jesus heal him. Now, it's interesting that uh, when we look at this situation that there were undoubtedly scribes and Pharisees in the multitude, that they were all well-dressed, uh, they, were, uh, they, they were dressed in their finery, they were out among the public, and so they would look good on the outside. Later on, remember, Jesus says that they look good on the outside, but they are like whitewashed sepulchers. There's dead men's bones, there's corruption on the inside. In contrast, the leper is corrupt on the outside, but he is uh, reverent, he's worshipful, he is trusting in Jesus on the inside. So the third thing that we see is the leper had humility. Humility is always indicative of grace orientation. He's not presumptuous. He, he worships, he submits himself to uh, the authority of Jesus, but he believes Jesus can heal him even though he is not sure that Jesus will heal him. That's what he says when we come to verse 3, uh, or at the end of verse 2, rather. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He recognizes Jesus has the authority and the power to do it, but that he may choose not to. One of the problems that we have in the healing movements today is this presumption that God ought to heal every one of us of our diseases. And that is not what Scripture says. In fact, those who are healed in Scripture from some physical calamity are very rare. 
and they only occur during a few periods of human history. During the time of Moses, we see Miriam that's healed of disease. During the time of uh, Elijah and Elisha, there's a couple of episodes. For example, when the widow of Zarephath's son is raised from the dead, we have examples of the healing of Naaman the Syrian, but this is abnormal. It's not normal. And then you go through periods in the Old Testament where there's no evidence of any healing until Jesus comes on the scene. So this is not normative. Healing is rare, and it's always for a specific purpose. So he recognizes this, and he says, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. In verse 3, we're told then that Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And he states it as a command, be clean. And at that time, the leper is rendered clean. It's interesting, he doesn't use the word heal here, but the word cleanse because it's showing that it's a fundamentally uh, a spiritual issue in terms of his ability to be ritually uh, purified, and so this is the um, this is what Jesus tells him to do. And then Jesus says, "See that you tell no one." He prohibits the leper from telling anyone. Now we know from Mark that the leper doesn't quite follow that advice, and he's so overwhelmed with his excitement that he tells people. But but there's a few reasons why Jesus uh, might tell him. Uh, not to tell anyone. First of all, because Jesus is following the Mosaic law, that the real issue immediately after healing is that the healed leper needs to go to the priest and have the healing verified and validated and offer the appropriate sacrifices. Uh, second, Jesus' fame, we know, was already spreading throughout Galilee, and he was not doing this to gain additional pu- publicity or testimony of his of his character. Third, Jesus did not want to further excite the multitudes who at this stage were still focused on a political Messiah rather than a spiritual Messiah. This isn't the only time Jesus heals someone and tells them not to tell anybody. It's because he is he, he needs to keep a lid, as it were, on all of this political uh, uh, action that was going on in uh, among the Jews who were looking, still looking to him as someone who would lead a revolt, perhaps. Uh, against Rome. And then lastly, he is telling this, uh, this man not to tell anyone, but to go to the priest. And the reason he does that is because the priest has to validate and verify the miracle. Uh, he has to follow Levitical procedure. He has to, uh, he has to give the initial sacrifice involving the two birds. And secondly, he ha- the, the priest has to verify that this person was indeed a leper, that they had been completely cleansed of the leprosy, and they had to go through a seven-day uh, period under observation. So what Jesus is doing in a very subtle and sophisticated manner is telling the the leper that he has to go to the priest because Jesus is going to force, by doing that, he's forcing the priesthood to verify and validate this miracle that they would understand was a unique and distinct sign that Jesus was indeed the the Messiah. Now, the other thing we ought to note here is that that that. Uh, Jesus was forbidden by the Mosaic law to touch the leper because the leper was unclean in Le- Leviticus 5.3. But Jesus touches the leper 
because the power is going from Jesus to the leper, and the leper cannot infect Jesus with the disease. So Jesus is able to uh, cleanse him, and he touches him. He is not fearful of the leper as the, um, as the Gentiles would be. So this is the first uh, healing episode. Then he, we move to a second healing episode. Now, it's seeing that this first uh, episode with the leper involves a, a, a Jewish leper, the shift that occurs in the next miracle is that the one who is healed involves a Gentile. It is Jesus' ministry to a Gentile that is emphasized. It co- covers uh, verses 5 through 13 and is the longest description of, of Jesus' uh, miracles in this opening section. And it also emphasizes a contrast in it between the faith of the Jews versus the faith of this Gentile uh, centurion. In verse 5, we're told, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Now the Luke account says that a centurion sent uh, uh, officers of the synagogue, elders of the community, to talk to Jesus. They were his go-betweens, his mediators, and it is still seen by Matthew. He just cuts out the uh, uh, the intermediate individuals that were involved, recognizing that it is the centurion uh, through these intermediate, intermediaries that is pleading with Jesus. Uh, this takes place in uh, Capernaum, Capernaum in Hebrew, which is the town of Jesus. And I showed a couple of these pictures last time. This shows the current... Uh, environment there, and you can see that the, the, the mountain in the background, this area here is considered the traditional site of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, that this isn't exactly a mountain if you have a, a reference to the Rocky Mountains or even the uh, Adirondacks, it's just rolling hills. Uh, this is an artist's depiction of what the village would have looked like at the time. This is another similar uh, depiction, artist depiction. And what we find there that's one of the most remarkable uh, uh, archaeological discoveries is a synagogue called the White Synagogue that was built in the late 4th century upon the remains of the synagogue of Jesus. That's the synagogue of the 1st century that we're talking about here. And in Luke chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, we're told that this centurion was such a lover of Israel and such a lover of the Jews that he uh, gave of his own wealth the money required to build this particular synagogue. I have a couple of pictures here to show you the fourth remains of the 4th century synagogue. It's quite an extensive structure, and it's probably not too different architecturally than the one from the uh, from the 1st century. And so he, he sends... Uh, his representatives to Jesus, and their message is, uh, Lord, my servant, and the word that's used there for servant isn't doulos, but pais, which is related usually to a young child or a young person, and it would indicate a young young man, probably uh, a boy who's his servant, and who is dear to him, and showing that he's not just a an employee or just a servant, but he is he is someone that is 
uh, that is loved dearly by the centurion. He cared deeply for him, and he's lying at home paralyzed in a lot of pain, and Luke tells us that he is on the verge of death. And so the centurion says, uh, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, and Jesus' response is, I will come and heal him. And when uh, this takes place, the centurion's response is, No, Lord, don't come. I'm not worthy that you should come under my, work, my roof. I think there's a recognition here by the centurion that an, a Jew should not come into the home that is unclean of a, of a Gentile. He's probably like the uh, centurion, uh, Cornelius in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, who is a, someone who is a seeker of God. He is not a full proselyte. Maybe he's a proselyte at the gate, but he is still would be considered unclean, and so he recognizes that Jesus should not come under his roof. And he also recognizes the principle of the uh, delegation of authority and that Jesus is in command, and all Jesus has to do is to uh, say a word, and the servant will be healed. He doesn't have to personally come and do anything. In the first example, we saw that when Jesus healed the leper, he touched him, and he gave a command, and he was immediately healed. In this situation, we see that that it's different. Jesus doesn't follow the same protocol every time. There's no standard. He doesn't even come into the presence of the uh, paralyzed servant. He simply uh, says that he is, will be healed. And this is um, causes Jesus to marvel at the faith of the centurion. He, we read in verse uh, 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those of, who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, this is the real core and heart of this particular uh, story and this particular healing, is that it is demonstrating that that Jesus is already uh, uh, seeing some opposition. It's foreshadowing of the coming opposition, but even here it's recognizing that there's n- not much faith in him in Capernaum. Later on, there will be some statements regarding the faithlessness of many in Capernaum. But this Gentile, in contrast to the Jews, is showing great faith, and that's at the heart of, of this episode, that Jesus is healing a centurion, uh, centurion's servant, not the centurion. Another thing we should observe here is that it's not the centurion's servant that has faith. There's no indication that the centurion's servant trusts in Jesus, has any faith in Jesus' ability to heal him, or anything else. All we see is that it is the centurion's faith that is what is significant, not the faith of the servant. And one of the myths that you hear from the faith healing movement is that you have to have faith in order to be healed. Well, here's an example where you had the servant who doesn't have any faith, probably not even a believer. So this is important to understand. In many of Jesus' miracles, the person who was healed uh, is not stated whether or not they have faith. It's not stated whether they're even believers. And so that is not necessarily a prerequisite biblically for uh, Jesus' healing. Now, Jesus is going to make a point here in Matthew uh, 8, verse 11, 
regarding the significance of this particular uh, uh healing event and what it signifies. But before we go there, I want to address one more point. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, the text says. This is in Jesus' humanity. Deity does not marvel. Deity does not show amazement. Marveling or amazement is a response to something new or unexpected. Since God is omniscient, he never ever runs anything, runs into anything new or unexpected. In terms of Jesus' omniscience, he knew that this uh, centurion would have this faith from eternity past. But Jesus in his humanity shows this amazement. Now this takes us to an understanding of the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And one of the aspects of that doctrine, we talk about a Greek word, kenosis, coming out of Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through through 7. And the emphasis there is that Jesus restricted the use of his divine attributes during the incarnation. As he entered into uh, humanity and went from eternity into time, Jesus willingly restricted the use of his divine attributes. Now, often we find that in this definition, people will say he restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. I take issue with that word independent because Jesus as the second person of the Trinity never used his divine attributes independently of the Father anyway. He's always in complete harmony with the will of God, and so he never acted independent of the Father. So it's better to simply state he restricted the use of his divine attributes during the incarnation only in the area of living his life as a human being. He still utilized attributes of his deity at times, for example, in healing. But it's as if these two natures, his undiminished deity and true humanity, are, are welded inseparably together and there's there's a firewall between them, uh, in a sense, so that Jesus in his humanity only accesses his deity under certain times and certain conditions in order to demonstrate who he is. The rest of the time, uh, his deity is not influencing his humanity. He is living his life as a human being, just as you and I live our life, so that he faces temptations, challenges, problems, he's weary, he's hungry, he has all of these different uh, limitations upon him as a human being, and he has to handle them the same way we do. I mean, let's face it, if Jesus handles his temptations out of his omnipotence, then how can that be a pattern for us in handling our temptation? Because that's not fair. You have to handle temptation like Jesus did. Well, he's omnipotent and he's sinless, so I can't do that. That's not fair at all. So the pattern has to be consistent that Jesus handles the problems that he faces in his humanity through the same tools, the same problem-solving devices that you and I do. He handles them by trusting in the Word of God and walking by the Spirit. And so then he was able to live a sinless life. But here he is simply expressing his that he marvels at this particular uh, circumstance And then he makes a spiritual point out of it. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
So now he's talking about the fact that there will many who come from all over the world. That's what it means from east and west. And sitting down is really the Greek word anaklino, which means to recline or to lie down. This is a picture of a banquet. And we're told that there is a banquet. This imagery is used several times to depict the millennial kingdom. And so that's what he is describing here is the millennial or the messianic kingdom and that there will be many there who come, who sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The mention of the three patriarchs of Israel indicates that this is, he's talking about the Jewish kingdom as prophesied in the Old Testament. And then he makes a statement of contrast. But the sons of the kingdom won't be there. Now, the term sons of the kingdom is used in Matthew 13, 38 to refer to believers. And there are some, and there are some in the free grace movement who think that this is a technical term for believers, and they will take this and say, well, it's what this is talking about is carnal believers who will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, on the good side of that teaching, uh, there are those who say this is all figurative language, and I believe they're correct on that. This is all figurative language to express uh, rejection and shame, and that there are those within the free grace movement who will say what this is simply saying in a, a very hyperbolic way is that there are going to be believers who are uh, failures at, in the spiritual life, they do not receive any rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And according to 1 John, they will experience shame at the judgment seat of Christ. And that's all that is being said here. Now, I differ with that. I think that may be true in other passages where you have this language because I don't think that any of the terms here are technical. What's interesting is lordship will t- lordship's uh, advocates will take part of this. Uh, they'll take the outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth as technical and not sons of the kingdom. The free grace side takes sons of the kingdom as technical and the other is figurative. I, I think that n- neither of them are technical terms. Sons of the kingdom refers to those to whom the kingdom is properly being offered at this stage in Matthew's gospel. And so that would be be the Jews. They were the rightful heirs of the kingdom according to the uh, uh, proclamation of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant and the land covenant in the Old Testament. But I believe that what Jesus is saying here by way of contrast is that there are those who will be in the kingdom And there will be those who are not going to be in the kingdom, and they will be in a place of punishment. And this is referring to the unbelievers, that this particular generation of, of Jews that reject Jesus as Messiah would be, their destiny would be eternal condemnation and the lake of fire. Now, we'll get into this, uh, the details of understanding this imagery the next time it occurs because it occurs several times in Matthew, and it will be better to wait until the next time before we get there. So in verse 13, after this episode, Jesus tells the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. In other words, he had faith. His faith was 
superior to anything that Jesus saw among the among the Jews. And so he is saying, according to your faith, your trust in me that I can heal him, your servant is healed. And immediately that servant was healed in that same hour. One of the things that we see here is the immediacy of Jesus' healing. It's not something that took time. One of the things you'll often hear from current our contemporary faith healers is that you know, your faith in God for healing, that it'll just take time. If you watch some of the faith healers on some of the TV channels, uh, that's the kind of thing that they will teach. Then we come to the third episode, which is described very briefly, Matthew eight fourteen to 15. And this is when Jesus comes to Peter's house. Peter's house has been discovered in Capernaum. Now there is a Roman Catholic church that is built above it, uh, it's, it's completely elevated above it so that it sort of protects this area from, um, from the uh, elements. But it's fairly evident. There's inscriptional evidence and in graffiti in the house related to the worship of the Lord that it makes it pretty clear that this particular uh, structure was a scene of worship as early as uh, 100 A.D., this is within a, a generation of the lifetime of these apostles. It was clearly a home, of, uh, a private home at first, and then it became a, a site where Christians would gather to worship. And so it's fairly strong evidence that this was indeed uh, Peter's, uh, Peter's home uh, during the early part of the first century. So Jesus came into Peter's house, and he saw his wife's mother, or Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. So she's got this, this fever, doesn't state what caused it, what the disease was, but it's a high febrile disease, and Jesus touches her hand. And the parallel passage in Luke, he helps uh, uh, raise her up, and she is immediately healed. The fever leaves her, and she arose and served them. Now, if you compare this with Luke, you'll see that in terms of the chronology, uh, Jesus first went to the synagogue that day. That tells us it was on the Sabbath. And that he then uh, went out of the synagogue, and following that service, according to Luke 4, 31 to 37, he cast a demon out of someone who was demon-possessed, and then he came to Peter's house. And it is there that he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Now, there's a couple of things that are left out. Number one... There's no indication that Peter's mother-in-law has any faith in Jesus. There's no indication that she is saved. There's no indication that she's trusting Jesus or has even asked Jesus to heal her. He just goes into the house, sees that she is ill, and he heals her, again, giving evidence that he is uh, he is the Messiah. What we see in all of these episodes is that Jesus is the one who has the ability to solve the problems that are caused as a result of sin, not personal sin, but the entrance of sin into human history. Therefore, he is making a claim to being the Messiah. This is what comes out very clearly in the final quote in Matthew eight sixteen and the, the, the quote from Isaiah 53, 4 in verse 17. As evening came, 
At, at, at sundown, the uh, Sabbath would end. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. We'll get into the whole doctrine of demon possession in a couple of weeks. And he cast out the spirits. It doesn't say he exorcised them. That's the Greek word exorkizo. He cast them out, ekbalo. Exorkizo, which was a ritual, magical process of various incantations and other things, was never, that word was never used of the disciples, the apostles, or Jesus. Exorcism in the Bible is always what pagans do. What Jesus and the disciples do is to exercise authority over the demons and to cast them out, and it's immediate. So he says he cast the spirits out with a word and healed all who are sick. So this is one of several general statements where Jesus is showing a grace to the multitudes and is healing them of their diseases as well as casting out demons. And then Matthew says in verse 17 that this is for a purpose, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our um, and bore our sicknesses. Now, what's interesting is the faith healers will take this verse out of context, and they say, well, see, Jesus died to heal you. And, and there are so many who are deceived, and they come, and they read this in the English, and they look at this and say, well, Jesus died to heal me if I'm sick. It must be because of some personal sin, or I just don't have the right kind of faith in Jesus or something. And so I need to, if I were really saved or if I were really spiritual, I would be healed. What's interesting here is that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, changes the terms that are used in the Isaiah 53-4 passage. In Isaiah 53-4, the words related to uh, healing and the words related to sickness are all used in parallelism with words for sin and trespass. Uh, uh, but here, when there's a word substitution... We read in Matthew's quote, he himself took our infirmities. He received them. That's the Greek word lombano. But in the original Septuagint of Isaiah 53.4, the word is pharaoh, which indicates a ceremonial or ritual. Isaiah 53.4 is talking about the atonement, but not Matthew 8.17. In the last line, he bore our iniquities is the Greek word bastadzo, and this, too, is a substitute for the uh, Greek word in the Septuagint, adunao. And both of these words simply indicate that what Jesus is doing at that particular time is removing and healing the sickness from, from these people who were diseased. The, he's not using the words from Isaiah 53, 4, which had, have an atonement nuance to them, and they're used in terms of ceremonial or ritual sacrifice. So when Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53, 4, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he changes the verbs to indicate that all he is saying is that Jesus is healing them of their physical diseases. He's not relating it to the atonement at all. And so by misunderstanding this, not knowing Greek, many people are deceived. Now, next time, I'm going to come back and we'll talk about and summarize the doctrine of healing as it's described in the Scriptures. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to focus on your Word and to realize that ultimately the problems that we have in life 
are the result of sin. They're the result of Adam's original sin and the corruption that came into the world. And that your solution is Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who paid the penalty for sin, that is Adam's original sin. And as a result of that, he is able to solve all of the other problems. We still live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is filled with hopelessness, it's filled with disease, it's filled with evil. And, Father, we know that the only solution to this is faith in Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's not uh, sure of their salvation or certain of their eternal destiny, that they will take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He has paid the penalty. He was our substitute. So that the only thing left that's required of us is to believe on him, to trust him. Just as we see in the example with the centurion, he trusted in Jesus. He believed he could do what he said he did. We need to believe that he did what he said he did, and that is to die on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that that if we are trusting in Jesus as believers for our salvation, for our eternal destiny in heaven, that we recognize that he is one who can also solve all the other problems in our life and that therefore we should fully trust in him as we walk by the Spirit moment by moment. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.